I'm reading from the 14th chapter of Revelation, chapter 3, and um, the 14th verse of chapter 3, and verse 20 is the text. Revelation 3, 14 and following. And to the angel of the church, that is, to the pastor of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says... I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have, need of, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, be zealous therefore and repent." And this is the text, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A pastor of a large uh, Baptist church in California was um, running an errand at the supermarket for his wife one afternoon. And while he was kind of browsing um, through the aisles of the supermarket, a lady came up to him and said, Pardon me, but are you not um, Pastor so-and-so who is pastor of the Boulevard Church down on the corner? And he said, Yes, yes, I am. And she said, well, I, have a, I, I, I want to ask you a question. She said, uh, have you ever seen the movie, Oh God? He said, yes, I, I saw the movie. And she said, well, do you remember that telephone call that John Denver got in that movie from God? And he said, um, yes, I, I remember that. And she said, well, I got one of those calls. And he thought now to himself, this woman is totally crackers. He said, I, I thought I would humor a little bit. He said, oh, you, you got one of those calls from God. She said, yeah. Now, for those of you who did not see the movie, let me catch you up. John Denver was in, the, in this building, this tall building, and got this telephone call from God who was played by George Burns. And, and, and he didn't really need to call him on the telephone. He just wanted to do that so that John Denver would understand that this was God talking. In fact, he laid the telephone down and talked to God directly after a while. And she said, I got one of those calls. And, and um, he said, oh, you did? She said, yes. She said, I know it was God because he told me things about myself that nobody else could know. She said, I'm a divorcee. And she said, at first I thought it was my husband, my ex-husband, playing a prank on me, kind of hassling me. But then she said, no, I, I, I'm certain that this was God calling me on the telephone. 
And he said, well, you know, what was the deal? He said, well, he wants to come over to my house. He, he said he wanted to come over to my house and eat dinner with me. Oh, he, he wants to come over to your house and eat dinner. I said, well, how'd it go? And she said, well, it's tomorrow night that he's coming. And he said, uh, he called me yesterday and he's coming over tomorrow night. He said, that's why I'm in the grocery store today shopping for, for him. And she said, now, you, you know about theology and you have answers to biblical questions. She said, now, I know you think that I'm absolutely crazy. He always thought to himself, now, how would she, why would she think that? Uh, I know that you think that I'm absolutely crazy, but I've got to ask you this question. And he said, okay, lay it on me. And she said, what do you serve God? She said, I'm not wealthy. and said, I'm not even a good cook. But she said, I don't know what to serve God. He's coming over to my house to eat. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, lady, I don't know what to tell you. You know, I, I couldn't tell you what to serve him. And she said, well, I think I've got it figured out. She said, somebody gave me a, an old sewing machine a few years ago. And said, I don't sew and I don't need that thing. He said, I'm going out today and sell that. And said, I'm going to have some extra money. And said, I've decided what I'm going to serve God. So I'm going to serve him ribeye steaks and, bake, and a baked potato and nice salad. So I think I've got it all figured out what I'm going to serve him. Now, probably by now, you've caught on that that really didn't happen, haven't you? I mean, that, that's too wild even for this pastor to talk about. Or rather, it's a parable that, that raises a question that demands an answer. And the question is, what do you serve God? I mean, if He's coming over to dinner, knocking at the door, what do you serve Him? Um, I, I know that, that uh, some of you hadn't thought about that a lot, but, but if you were to put on your thinking cap this morning, what do you serve God? Well... What you serve God is determined by your concept of Him. So that what you offer God is, is based upon what you deem to be His worthiness. And A.W. Tozier was right when he said, the, the, the gravest question that faces any of us is God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he thinks or does at a given time, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. For we all, he said, move by the unwritten law of the soul toward the mental image we have of God. So that if you've got a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God, you could confidently predict the spiritual future of that man. For we all seem to, to act on the basis of what we conceive God to be like. And James Michener picks up on that in his book, The Source, which takes place 2200 B.C. And it centers around a, a, a great hulk of a man by the name of Erbal. And Erbal worships the deities, the local deities, the god of death and the goddess of fertility. And one day the priest sent a message to Erbel that he's to come to the temple and offer his son as a human sacrifice. That is, if he wants good crops. And so he drags his son and his grieving wife to the temple and they go through this horrible worship, temple worship, and he offers his son as a sacrifice as, as, as well as some other fathers there. 
And then the priest gets up and he makes an announcement that one of the faithful servants is going to spend a week in the temple with a new temple prostitute. And the wife is amazed when she sees this desire go across the face of her husband. She never really realized he was like that. And she's shocked when he lurches forward enthusiastically when his name is called as the one chosen. And so as she leaves the temple that day, her head swimming by the whole ordeal, she says to herself, if he had a different God, he would have been a different man. For we all tend to move toward our mental image of God. And so this book of symbols, this letter of symbols, goes to great detail to describe who's coming to dinner. And in the first chapter it says that John has this vision of the Lord standing in the midst of the churches and His head and hair is snowy white, symbolical of His age, the eternal God, symbolical of His purity. And it says that He looks out with eyes that are flames of fire, symbolical of His wisdom, His omniscience. And His feet are burnished brass, symbolical of His power, He's omnipotent. And His voice is the sound of rushing waters, symbolical of His authority. And He moves into this letter to the Laodicean church in particular, writing as though He were writing us. And He says of Him that He is the Amen. It was a word that was applied at the end of a solemn statement to guarantee or to emphasize its truth. And so He's saying of Him that He is ultimate and essential truth and utterly dependable. And He is the true witness, true as opposed to the artificial. In the midst of an artificial world, He's the genuine thing. And He is the firstborn of the creation of God. doesn't mean that He is the first thing the Creator created. It means that He is the moving cause of all creation, that life flows out of Him as a source. Now that's who's coming to dinner. Isn't He worth your best? Isn't He worth more than you and I are willing to offer Him? For the sin of many of us is the sin that's found in the book of Malachi. And God laments through the prophet the sin of Israel and says, You bring the lame as an offer as a sacrifice. Is, not, is that not evil? And you bring the sick and the blind and offer as a sacrifice. Is that not evil? You offer that to your governor and see if he's pleased or will receive you kindly. And the sin is this, that Israel had lost the sense of worship and she was bringing the blind and the lame and the sick as a sacrifice and offering that to God. Even though in the Mosaic law it was demanded, it was required that the lamb placed or offered to God was to be without spot or blemish, the finest of the flock. But they kept the finest to themselves and offered to God that which breeds its own contempt. They offered that blind and lame and sick. Now there are two things wrong with that. It is offering to God that which is of no value to us Therefore, it requires no sacrifice of us. And God always values the gift by what it costs the giver. You know, people are always offering to God that which they don't want or need. They offer Him time that's left over. And they offer Him love that's left over. 
and they'll offer him change that they don't need. A friend of mine was saying one Saturday afternoon he was just kind of walking through the church going over his sermon in his mind. And he said, I just began to notice all the things that were in our church that somebody else didn't want. He said, we had a stove in the kitchen. One burner didn't work. The, the, the oven door was falling off. Somebody had brought it and gave it to the church because they didn't want it. He said, down in the basement, there were, all, there were all these pieces of furniture. He said, one guy came by one day and walked into my office and said, could the church use a nice couch? He said, well, sure. He said, well, great. Save me a trip, long trip to the dump grounds and unloaded this couch, put it in the basement. You know, all of us, many of us, feel confident that we can offer to God that which we don't want or need. Now, some people make a tremendous sacrifice, but some people offer to God that which requires them nothing. Oh, we want to give God something, but we don't want it to cost us anything. And the second thing that's wrong with this sin is that it, that it portrays a willingness to offer to, to someone else what we would not offer to God. That is, we would offer to God something that we'd never offer to anybody else. He said, you take what you offer to God, what you'll give to God, and you give it to the governor. You offer it to him as if he's pleased with you. In other words, if you treat the president like you treat God, he's saying, they'll throw you in jail. Would you do something with me this morning? Would you contrast the love you give to your spouse or your children with the love you offer to him? Would you contrast this morning your faith, the trust that you offer to those that you know with the confidence you've placed in God? Would you do something with me this morning? Would you contrast the, the obedience and the submission that you give to those who have earned your confidence with the reluctance and the rebellion that has broken in to mar your fellowship with God? And the implication of all of it is that our concept of God is so decadent, it's far beneath the dignity of the Most High God. Now, you don't have to worry about what you, what you serve God if it's your best. But there's something else that kind of emerges in this text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, I'll come in and sup with him, he with me. The second thing that, that, that emerges in that is this, that God delights in receiving what you give in joy and faith. Now, I don't want to be profane this morning or, um, or um, sacrilegious, but when he says... I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I just get this mental, mental image of two people sharing their lunch. And here are these two guys, maybe at work, and they just open up their brown bag. And one of them says to the other, hey, that ham and cheese sandwich you have looks good. Well, the other guy says, well, here, take it. Uh, enjoy it. And, and he does. He takes it and he eats it. And then he says, well, here, my wife is the best cook. She's the best cook cupcake maker I know. Here, have my cupcake. And I get this mental image of these guys who are giving and receiving. I will sup with him. Now watch this. I will sup with him and he with me. Now what we do is we emphasize the latter phrase. We emphasize the fact that God is this gracious giver and he is. He, he, 
He is the cosmic giver. He is the cheerful giver. He, it is His nature to give. And, and, and not because He must, but because of a, it is a part of the divine nature of love to give. If I were to say to you this morning, fill in the blank with one word, God is, everybody here would say, God is love. And it is a part of the divine nature to give. And so He lavishes on us the blessings of salvation history and the incarnation. And He offers to us as individuals the privilege of the redeemed life and the community of faith because we live in this awesome, profound reality that God so loved He gave. But I want to say something. I want to suggest something that is as profound as that statement. It's this. God so loves He receives now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. When I was a kid growing up, I, uh, I had this pastor named Grady Allison. He, he, I just, I, I revered him. He was, he was such a great preacher and, and, and such a man of dignity. And uh, when I came to the Lord as a senior in high school, I, 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 this guy was just my idol. He was just awesome. And his wife was just the epitome of sophistication. Her, her father was Arthur Travis, who was well-known among Bab, Southern Baptists. And, 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 and here they were out there in a little old country town of Monday, Texas. Grady Allison, who was this marvelous preacher, and, and, and his, his wife, Glorietta Allison, who was the epitome of sophistication. And, and, and a lot of people were intimidated by them because they, they felt they were so much above, you know, um, Monday. You know, well, who isn't, really? But... Uh, they just felt like they were so much above the folks at Monday. I mean, there was just this otherness about them, this apartness. But I wasn't intimidated by them. I didn't know any better. And, and so when I got married and, and finished senior year and got married and went off to college, Grady Allison came to, 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 to preach a revival for us there at, in the church that I joined in Abilene, Texas. And we invited him to come over and eat with us. I didn't know you, you didn't do that. I, now I know that preachers, when they go off in revivals, if they can, they eat steaks, you know, and all that kind of stuff out in a nice restaurant. Some of them do. But we invite him. Here, here's the audacity of it. Watch this. We invite him to come to our converted barracks and eat with us. And he did. And we had this little old um, dinette suit we'd bought secondhand that legs kept coming off of. And, and, uh, and, 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 and Margaret fixed pork chops. Now, let me tell you what. You haven't eaten until you eat Margaret's pork chops. I mean, you can go down to Steak and Ale and get you a ribeye or wherever, but you, we had pork chops. Now, that's a pretty good deal. And, and he came in and he sat down at my table and he started eating my pork chops. You know, I, you know he'd act like he liked it. You know, just had a good time. His wife wasn't that impressed, but uh, Grady uh, seemed like he just really enjoying himself eating our, eating our pork chops. Now, as, as, when he left, and as I've got a little experience, you know, behind me, under my belt, I realized that's a pretty big deal. That this man, holy other man, came into my house and took what I had to offer. Let me tell you something. We feel like we're doing God his big favor when we serve him. Let me tell you what. The greatest thing God has ever done for you is to allow you to serve him. 
And, and, and we, we really feel real good, you know, when we reach down in our pocket and, and give a little bit into the offering on Sunday morning. Let me tell you what. The greatest thing God has done for you lately is to allow you that privilege. The marvelous thing about God is that He's not so holy other that He will not take what I have to offer, as little as it is, if it's my best. And the reason He delights in receiving, supping with me, taking what I have, is that He knows that I'm becoming what He is, the cosmic cheerful giver. For if He is the giving cause of all that's good, in order to become like Him, I must become that generous servant, you see. And as I'm becoming that generous servant, offering to Him and to others that which He's blessed me with, I am measuring up to my authentic manhood. So this text says to me that God will delight in what you have to offer. You know, who's the most thrilled when people come on Sunday morning and give their lives to God? Why, he is. He said, now there's something in that boy. There's something in that, that girl, that man, that woman that I can use. But there's a question that kind of haunts me this morning as I, as I kind of look at this, this text, is this. What's the catch? What's the What's the catch? If He is the God who is the moving cause of all creation, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal God, why is He standing and why is He coming to my house for dinner? Why is He coming to me? Now, I'm going to say a word maybe that, that, that a disciple now weekend can identify with, and some of us also. When we hear his knock at our door, the first thing that comes to mind is, what's he want? What's he, what's he horning in on my life about? Because we have this idea that if God, if we open up our life to God, if, if we open up our life to him, he's going to crowd in and he's going to narrow the limits of our living. He's going to curb our pleasures. In fact, he's going to cramp our style. For this concept we have of God, and we move toward the mental image we have of Him, our concept of Him is that He is this God who wants to dwarf and dominate us, and, and we look upon Him more as a rival than a friend who is jealous of us. And so we say, no way is He going to crowd in on my life. What does He want in the first place? What does He want to do to me? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What, 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 is he, what does he want to crowd in on my life about? Well, I've got, uh, uh, got good news for you. Two things. What he wants to do is to enrich you. Now watch this. He said, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. And the, and the guest becomes the host and he begins to enrich your life. He wants to enrich you. Now, now, if you, you go back into the, into, the, into, the, into the text, into the passage that was read, and notice they said, you think you're wealthy, but you're not. I want to give you gold for your, for your poverty. You, you think you're dressed in fine raiment, and, and you have to understand that Laodicea was a place where linen was manufactured. It was the linen capital of the world. And, and you think you're dressed, but you're not. I want to give you virtues, clothes for your nakedness. 
and he said, I want to give you eye salve. I want to give you light for your blindness. And Laodicea was the place where eye salve was manufactured that was sent out all over the world. I want to give you light for your blindness. I just want to enrich you. I want to bless you. And there are three kinds of meals in that Greek world. One was a quick breakfast that they had. The second was they cook a little lunch with them, kind of usually just a crust of bread, and they'd eat it on the side of the road. But the third meal was the meal where they would sit down and they would sup with one another, and they'd just eat and talk and visit for a long, long time. And it was a, it was a great blessing in, 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 any, in any home, in any community, that, that they could just sit down and enjoy one another. That's what he says here. I just want to come in and I want to enrich your life. I want to fill your life up. I want to bless it. Let, let, me, let me say this. Hear this. If you open up your life today to God, He's going to enrich that life as, you, it, has, as it has never been enriched. That's all He wants to do. But He not only wants to enrich your life, He wants to enthrone your life. And so He says, if you overcome, I, want you, I will make you sit on my throne. In other words, he's saying, I want to give you a life, a king's life. I want to give you a victorious life. I want to give you a reigning life, a royal life. I want to enthrone you. And that's why we were created. You see, God created the first pair in order that they might be kings. And he put them in the garden and he said, I want you to have dominion over here. I want you to reign in this garden so that they were not just tenants of paradise, they were rulers of paradise. But something happened. They sinned. And when they sinned, they went from sovereign to sinner to servant. And the sad part about it all is, we, we, we who are sons of Adam, and that means all of us, um, we're all born servants and slaves. You say, is there anything we can do about it? Yes, there is. For the God who created you to live like kings has redeemed you in order that you might live like kings. So that the, so that the dominion that was lost because of Adam's sin is regained because of Jesus' sinlessness. So that when he died and was buried and rose again, he undid everything that, sin, that Adam's sin had done and it was in order that you and I no longer live like slaves but kings and rulers and regality. He wants to enthrone your life. He wants you to sit in triumph over, over everything in life. And so Paul says it like this, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. Now, now notice it was not reign in death or in the kingdom that is to come, but reign in life. He wants to come into your life to make you reign. Now, God always gives us what we need, and so I was sitting at the dinner table yesterday trying to think of a good illustration that would nail this point down, and it brought one right on TV. They had this deal on there on TV, on television, about this woman who had found this eagle, sick eagle, over in Spokane, uh, Spokane Washington. 
And, and she took that eagle and, 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 and some people, the forest reserve and all those kind, began to nurture that eagle to give it back its strength and its life. And, and, and they, they thought it wouldn't live, but, but it did. And they had it tied to a stake in the backyard of this scientist's house. And as it began to uh, get its strength and, 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 and become what it was created to be, it began to want to leave. And so it would flap its wings and it would lunge against the end of the rope and, of course, would fall back, had it tied by the legs. But then came the day for that eagle to be allowed to be the eagle and showed it. It happened last week. They got the eagle and they had it under their arms and they went out in the backyard of this woman who had found it. She had the honors. She had the eagle under her arm and she brought it out there and she threw it up, but didn't fly. Kind of fell on the ground, hopped around a little bit, and flapped its wings. They said, well, things are not turning out like they thought. Well, I guess the eagle thought still on the end of that line, that card. So they got the eagle again and they threw it up, flapped its wings and kind of hopped on the ground a little while. But in a little bit, with cameras rolling, that eagle began to flap his wings, realized who he was and took off. And they watched it with the camera. It circled around them about three times and then soared. And I thought to myself, that's why Jesus Christ wants into my life and yours. He wants to cut us loose from that which binds us. He wants to liberate us from that which enslaves us. He wants to set us free. And He comes into the experience of our own defeat and despair and death and He nurtures us in the power of His Holy Spirit and one day He sets us free and we become what we were meant to become. We possess what we possess and we start to soar. Now, if He's coming to dinner, that's why He's coming, in order to free you. And He says that if you live this overcoming life, if you have experienced the eagleness that I am allowing you to have and possess, then forever you shall reign. And when I establish my kingdom and my throne, you will be on it. They lost their crown in the garden and Jesus bought it back. Now you've seen Holman Hunt's painting of, the la of, the, of Jesus at the door, haven't you? It's called The Light of the World. It hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral, the original. You've seen many prints of it. You'll notice as the little girl said to her father, uh, there's something wrong with that painting. There's no latch. There's no knob. And the, and, and the father said... Um, no, that's the way it's meant to be. You have to open it from the inside. So he's a perfect gentleman. He stands at the door. He stands. Do you see his posture? He stands at the door and he keeps on knocking. He'll not give up. And he keeps on knocking, but the door has to be opened from the inside. And one child said to his father as she looked at that painting which has become an inspiration for many across the years, 
I know why they haven't come to answer his knock. I know why they haven't opened the door to him. Well, why, honey? It's because they're all in the back of the house. And some of us have allowed so many things to crowd him out, so many things to shove us toward the back. And we've given priorities, priority to so many things that we're spending our time in the basements. But somebody's coming to dinner. Now what are you going to offer him when he gets here? My plea is this. My proposition is this. Offer him your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have come and that you desire to receive what we have, five loaves and two fishes, and that you have for us an enrichment and an enthronement if we'll but open up our heart and life to you. And I pray that there'll be those this morning who have heard your knock, perhaps in the sessions of the weekend, Young people have heard you knocking. Perhaps in the song service, men and women, young people, have heard you entreating and knocking. In this message, we have heard your knock. And I pray, Father, that you'll give us courage and faith to open the door, by faith to receive you, by faith to yield our life to you, so that our life can be enriched and enthroned. Bless this invitation, Lord, to your glory and honor, I pray in the name of Jesus for his sake. Now, there are three kinds of invitations. Look here. The first invitation is for you who have, who have never opened the door to Christ the first time. You've never, by an act of your will, said, I open my life to Jesus Christ. I commit my heart and life to Him. I trust Him and Him alone to be my Savior. I'm asking you this morning to open up your life to Christ, to say to Him in faith, in prayer, Lord Jesus, I accept you today as my Savior, and I commit my heart and life to you in simple faith. I trust you and you only for salvation, for my salvation. The second invitation is for those of us who may have already made in our mind a decision that we're going to open up our life to Him. We're going to submit to Him, sell out to Him, follow Him, yield to Him. We've been on the, on the outside. We've been on the periphery. We want to serve the Lord in total commitment. And so we open our, we call it rededication of life or recommitment. I give you my life anew today and I accept your control. There may be some who need to join the church by letter, promise, uh, by promise of letter or by statement. Our prayer is that you'll come to do it right on the first word. That's the easiest time.
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and will open up, I'll come in. Sup with him. He with me. Would you do it right now while we stand to sing?